Okay, welcome to a very special edition of the Celtics Lab podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Kevin Fye. I'm joined by Alex Colbert and Dr. Justin Quinn. We have a very wonderful guest in-house, the always spectacular Mirren Fader, the New York Times bestselling author of the book Giannis, The Improbable Rise of the NBA MVP, a senior writer at The Ringer, and the darling of the NBA establishment. Mirren, how are you? <laughs> Is that so? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me, you guys. <laughs> pleasure is all ours. Uh, we love seeing people achieve great success. And the Giannis book, I mean, I hope you liked writing it as much as we all loved reading yeah. it and seeing it spread its wings and all of that. Thank you so, so much. We're here to talk to you about that. We're here to talk to you about, um, you wrote a piece on Derek White, whom we love here at the Celtics Lab podcast, and just kind of how the sausage gets made, I suppose. But just quickly, at a glance, I'm going to ask you a weird question, um, which is informed by anonymous people on NBA Twitter, which is where all great journalism comes from. <laughs> at a glance, how well does this final stack up vis-a-vis other finals, just in terms of entertainment? I mean, honestly, like, I just keep watching the play of Steph Curry just, like, yelling at the Celtics bench, and I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm enthralled. I've seen, I saw it live, but I've, I've seen it, you know, a million times on Twitter, and I just... I think it's just so entertaining just how back and forth. I mean, personally, I don't like all the big leads at times, but really, I feel like this is a great series. Um, I mean, there's just so much talent. Like, sometimes I really have to stop and say, like, wow, we're actually really lucky to witness so many great young players at one time, you know, because maybe it's hard to appreciate in the moment, you know, even if we all spend our time forecasting who belongs in the mm-hmm. upper echelon, but really, you have to take us take a second and just stop and realize like we are so lucky <laughs> it's insane yeah I, I feel similarly either this is going to take Steph from like upper echelon to just like pure supernova or it's right. gonna it's going to solidify what we think we know about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown like either way the quote-unquote like narrative of the 2022 NBA finals it's going to do something uh okay we're not going to talk to you much about the finals actually um so but thank you I couldn't help myself Again, I was thinking about it last night, but what we are going to do is we're going to talk about your book about Giannis because it's spectacular, as is Giannis, and your recent article about Derek White, who also spectacular in a different way, and we'll go from there. So I'm going to swing to Justin, who is is going to get first bite at the apple. So I'm an anthropologist, and one of the things that uh, helped me kind of fall into the lap of being a sports writer is my background conducting ethnography. One of the things that stands out to me about your writing and in particular, the book about Giannis is how ethnographic it was. Um, So before I get into all that, uh, I wanted to ask you like, what is it like watching the East finals uh, knowing him so well, or the East semifinals, I should say, what was that like? Well, it's, it's so bizarre because you spend so much time in somebody's childhood or, you know, the early years in the NBA when like one of my favorite things I found was that he had to practice his mean face <laughs> and you watch him in these, these huge games and he's just being so like, you know, intense and showing his face right to the camera. And I don't know, it just makes me, it just makes me pause like, wow, this person has come so far and again it's hard to appreciate while you're in it but really what Giannis has done is so extraordinary and um 
I love what you were saying about anthropology. It's interesting. When I first got to college, I was like, maybe I should be an anthropology major. I took um, I took a course and I learned all about the stuff that you were saying. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. Like, I'd love to just study a group of people or like study a thing and just go and embed. And I think that's what I loved about doing this book and about doing sports writing is like, you know, I get to be an observer. I get to sort of be a listener in on somebody's life and try to figure out why they are the way that they are. And I think when I see how Giannis pushes himself so freaking hard and the way that he is so charismatic, but yet humble, I just cannot help but think like pinpoint it to several points in his past or, you know, his family's past. And I don't know, I, I just find it really fascinating. Um, I can't just watch it like a normal person. Like I think of random things like, oh my God, when he was seven, this happened. You know, it's it's very fun for me, but it is definitely an emotional uh, connection watching players that I cover. So did that affect your opinion on who's going to win the series? And it's okay <laughs> if it did. <laughs> it's not yes. going to be a problem here. <laughs> I am a quasi Bucks fan now. Um, I, as you guys know, I'm in LA. Like I grew up a Lakers fan. I'm still, you know, a Lakers person. But then I became a Bucks person through this process. And my dad was like, "You're such a bandwagoner," and I was like, "I'm rooting for me. It's not about the Bucks, okay?" And he was like, "I get it. I get it." So me and my family all got Giannis Bucks shirts, and we had a superstition last year when they won the title that if we didn't wear the shirt, like they were gonna lose and like one time I didn't do my laundry and I didn't have the shirt and shortly oh, no. they lost that game <laughs> yeah I've got I've got a shirt I only wear for finals games uh where we're not finals games but elimination games for the Celtics in, in the postseason and so far it's been undefeated but we can talk about that in the See, it matters episode. yes it matters um so yeah I'm kind of a Bucks fan now <laughs> no I totally understand he's a hard guy not to root for after reading your book uh when he's not knocking you over, I imagine he's quite a charismatic fellow. Um, it was a little hard to to uh, think about him in the same way that I was when I was reading about him as I was when I, he was obviously fouling the Boston Celtics, but that's okay. Uh, yes, I will admit, I will admit you are right on this, but um, I'm a cool distance. It's okay. It's, it's, I'm not the referee. <laughs> it's not my job. So I just you know, complain about them for money. <laughs> Uh, so the great Bob Ryan once said that our fandom actually improves our coverage. Uh, do you feel that that's, that's true more in a more general sense? I think it could be. I'm really conflicted on this because, um, I think it depends on how you do it. Exactly. Like how, how much does it really infuse your work? You know, I sure, like I grew up a Lakers fan, but like when I'm profiling Austin Reeves, that doesn't really enter I'm more just like wow this is a really interesting person with a really interesting journey um I think when I think of fandom mine's a little different than other people like I think other people are like yes I'm a diehard fan of this and that and I want them to win mine is more like um basketball is my life for so long like as a player as a person that I am a fan of just the game and the players. And so when I'm interviewing somebody, I, I don't know, I just have like such a deep respect for what they do and like how hard it is and like how they have to, you know, when they fail, they do it in front of millions. Like, I think my fandom is more so just like coming from a deep place of like, awe uh, of how they do this over and over and over again and how hard that is. 
And I think it's influenced like the empathy that I try to bring to stories just because I, I have a real sense of like how hard this job is and how, um, just how painful it can be, you know, like we tend to write about the guys that do really well, but I, I like visiting stories of, of struggle and things like that, because I think that's also interesting. So I don't know. I think my fandom is more so just about like players in general, rather than a specific team. So in my opinion, you're an anthropologist. You may not be a formal trained right. anthropologist. I yeah. really wanted to major in it. I really did. And then I was like, you know what? I love literature. I'm going to be an English major. I'm going to so, be a nerd over there. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because of how you reflected on, you know, power, struggle, uh, elements like that are, are critical to anthropology, but also situating yourself in a dialogue and the narrative and how being a participant in your observation uh, affects you and your writing. And so to close the loop, I really do think that being a fan is being a good anthropologist if you're doing it in an earnest way that respects people and their stories and yourself. So right. kudos. I like so that. interesting. I never even thought of that, you know, until talking to you guys, like I, you'll notice in my stories, like I'm not present in there. Like, it's not like he told me or like, there's only, I only did that like twice for the two Lamello stories overseas because my editor made me, but I really wasn't comfortable. <laughs> and I think, more. It, I don't know. It's like, I, <laughs> when I, it's it, appropriate. Yeah. I feel like if it reveals something about the subject, yes. That's what I think is interesting. But when it's just like, look at me, I got access. I'm so cool. Like, that's what I don't like. And I think because I so want the subject to be, you know, the main character, the only character amongst others, I just feel like I don't belong in here. And so I like being, you know, maybe to your point, the anthropologist in the back that's invisible. Like, that's my favorite thing is just like being in the corner observing everything, taking it all in, and then like, how can I write this story, you know? I won't go down the rabbit hole of objectivity. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll be here all time. day. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that Alex, uh, no, actually, Cam had the next chunk, so I'm going to pass okay. it on. Okay. And actually, my, my chunk's a little tangentially about objectivity. Um, so Dr. Quinn is a trade anthropologist, and Alex and I are trained high school teachers. Um, we, we podcast in the evenings or on the weekends. So one of the things that I guess is similar to the work that I do that I see in your work is, is that objectivity insofar as like I teach economics and I deliver the information. I don't really tell the kids how I feel about it so strongly anyways. And there is a culture of that. I'm, this is kind of a two-part question because your work with the ringer muddies the water, but in theory, a sports journalist should be objective. Um, they should state things very clearly, but they should be objective. Where do you find the, the challenges in that as a, a long-form sports writer and maintaining that objectivity? Um, I mean, without naming names, I'm sure halfway through a story, you've realized, hey, my perspective on this person is very different than I thought it was, but here we are. Um, so yeah, how do you keep that North Star of objectivity when that is appropriate? I mean, it's a really good question. It's something that I think about a lot. Like, um, you know, objectivity is kind of a myth in a way, right? Like my approach to something is probably gonna be different than a male writer. Not better, just different, just because I just have a different lens. Um, and 
everything that I have been through in my life, of course, is going to influence my lens. Like nobody shows up to the page completely devoid of, you know, ideas and deeply infused thoughts and beliefs. Like, but I think what it, I think the objectivity, how you quote, maintain it, if it exists at all, is just saying like, this person is different than me. My job is to understand them and listen to them and not make a judgment about them, right? Like, that's why I love long form. I could never be a columnist. I think Mm -hmm. I would like go cry if I wrote something mean about somebody. Like, I think that I, I think it's just not, I can't, you know, like that would not be, um, but long form, like, I don't have to be in an authorial, you know, authoritative, I don't know, it's really early over here. Um, uh, (laughs) Making up words at 7 a.m. I don't know if like, that's my, that's my role or my goal. And I think like, it's, I think other people may have a different goal than me because they do different writing and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. I think I just knew that like, I feel like I enjoy myself. Like I said, when I'm in the back and I'm not the story. And so I keep my objectivity by just, um, just centering them. And when I don't understand something and when it doesn't, when it doesn't click with me, I just straight up ask them, like, I'm not understanding how you came to think this or like, help me, help me really understand what it was like to think this way. Cause a lot of my stuff gets into the head and the heart, not, not as much as like the physicality of like how good you are and all those things. So, right. yeah, it's just, it's an, it's endlessly fascinating to me, this subject. I will say, I, I do appreciate the, the suggestion that you're a storyteller, not part of the story. Um, but when I think of people like Jackie Mack, for example, the stories that she tells about Larry Bird or the, the people uh, she was covering back in the day, she is a part of the story because I think who she is, who she was, and that context is really interesting. So I kind of agree with Justin at times, being part of the story can be really fascinating um, as the journalist. And a kind of tangential relation to that, I do see the ringer as taking the the stoic, objective uh, columnist, beat writer, anything in between, and celebrating fandom that we know Chris Ryan loves the, the Philadelphia teams. And obviously we know who Bill Simmons uh, roots for. What do you think, just as a, a consumer of sports media, uh, not necessarily as who works at the ringer, um, <laughs> what do you think that has done for the sports media landscape, having such a powerful entity celebrate fandom in such an interesting way? I mean, I think the bigger issue is not like, I like said team. I think the bigger issue is, I want to be cool with said athlete mm-hmm. when the fandom becomes fanboyism. Sure. I think that's, I think that's the difference. It's like, it doesn't really matter if you root for the Celtics and you know that, like, I just, I think we are, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, I don't think that I am, I should say, I am very old school. Like I have had subjects be like, you are so weird. When I say like, <laughs> I can't let you buy me a coffee. No, like, nothing. I will get fired. Like, no, we can't have this. And they're like, this is so weird. Or like when another person was like, here, I'll give you a swag bag from Adidas. They just came over. And I'm like, I can't take your gear. Like, it's just like, well, the last journalist did. And I was like, well, that's the problem, you know? So I think it's, it's more of that. Like it's not fandom is like, not the issue to me. I think when it's more like we forget 
the lines being blurred as far as like objectivity in the sense of not perspective, but in the sense of you cannot curry favors for me when I yeah. to write about you. Like I can't be friends with you. And I think the problem, like I had a, I had a, a journalist reach out to me and say like, do you show them the story before you like turn it in? Like, how does that work? And I was like, oh, oh my God. Like, I'm so stressed at this question. How do we get here? You know? And like, um, that's the issue to me. And I think a lot of it is because what's spawn con and what's journalism is kind of blurring the lines. And, you know, some people will say, I'll give you access to this player, but you cannot ask about this or that or that. And I'm like, what are we doing? You're, you're like, this is not an interview. So I think, um, I think to me, like, I'm not really bothered by like, you know, wow, I know you like the Sixers. I think it's more Mm -hmm. like, it, it then makes my job difficult because I'm really old school and they're like confused that I don't allow them those same things. That's, yeah. that's what I find like kind of troubling. Okay. I, I really like that answer. Um, in the vein of storytelling, I have two quickies and then I'm going to swing to Alex to talk about Derek White. What is something written, filmed, produced, spoken in NBA media recently in the past few years that you really enjoyed, whether it's winning time on HBO, be a podcast that has caught your ear. What's something in the space of NBA storytelling that has really interested you uh, as of late? Oh man. Um, So like, I'm a huge book nerd. And when somebody asked me like, what do you read? I'm like, books, what are books? Even though I read like 70 last year. Um, uh, uh, Well, I mean, the one, the thing that immediately came to mind for me is um, something a bit older. It was um, Wright Thompson's uh, story on Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of more a cont- contemporaneous um, story, but, um, oh God. Um, oh, oh, I know. Chris Herring's book on blood in the garden. Oh, cool. Oh yeah. God. I read that in two days. I was like, and it's not because I know Chris and I just love him. And I think he's just so great as a human being that book was so good yeah like okay I'm 31 like I was born in 1991 like that was not my era but I jumped right in and I was like oh my god and then like halfway through I was like this team's like isn't even winning like why do I like this (laughs) and it's because Chris is so good at like the details and like the little Pat Riley weird stuff and mannerisms and like damn, this coach is so quirky and crazy almost. And like, oh God, this guy's going to get punched in his face. Or like, you know, I just think every line was like, boom, 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 boom. And like, I have such a respect for that because I know how hard it is to sustain attention over like 400 pages. That was my deepest fear, to be honest, that somebody would be like, this is boring. I'm giving up on page 150. I rallied for this girl, but it sucks. Like that was my fear and so to see Chris like write with such detail about an era that like majority of his you know most eager followers were not around for like I thought that was so good it was so good I'm about to turn 30 I'm in the same boat that the those Knicks are for a while they were just a heel for the right. and the, the bulls in my mind and I think because what, what's most clear is Chris loves basketball and that's why he wrote so well. I think that's where fandom is at its greatest as a, a writer or a content creator. Um, yes. Okay, my last question, and I'll swing it to Alex, is what's a story, 
past or present in the NBA that you think deserves 400 pages or deserves the, the big screen? Like what is a team or a player or a coach, uh, NBA or WNBA or some other basketball institution that you think people need to, to hear the full story? Oh, God. Um, well, I will say, <laughs> so I, I am in the process of doing my second book now. And one of the ideas that I was toying with before the one that I stayed on was Tim Duncan. And I just think Tim has been so unexplored and people might say, well, like, how are you going to make that a movie or a documentary or a book? He's so, you know, whatever, just very quiet and boring and blah, blah, blah. Tim Duncan's fascinating. Tim Duncan's been and it's because he doesn't, he's been so undercovered because he doesn't want to be covered. Yeah. I think the guys that don't want to be covered are the most fascinating because they haven't even shared the tip of the iceberg as far as who they are, what they're about, how they did. So I was like all in on the, the Tim Duncan. I was like, I really want to do this. And um, he was just not like, there would be no way that I could, you know, do wow, that. The other thing I, I would like, I'm going to manifest it. I want to write Pop's book when he retires. Um, hey, all the power to you. I would just die if I could do that. Um, so those are the the two things that I think would be really cool. Pop's book has got to be at least a thousand pages. I mean, that's, that's going to be Hello, a, we could do a two-parter. We could do a two-parter yeah. like Obama. I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a student who is a big Spurs fan, but he he's uh, 14 or 15. So I mean, he's only experienced half of what the Spurs were. Right. He loves Manu, doesn't know that much about Tim Duncan. Wow. Or like the David, like there's so much history with the Spurs, you know, and like writing about Giannis because the book was really about the Bucks as much as it was about Giannis. Like it really was a story about the Bucks and how they came to be and how they are now. And I just think doing something Spurs centric would be so cool. I I look forward to someone taking (laughs) that idea from you. Some listener is about to <laughs> make their name. Okay. Right. Closer to home, you wrote about Derek White and uh, Alex and I are co-presidents. I guess you can be a co-president too of the Derek White fan club. Um, the Love three it. of us. Uh, so Alex <laughs> is going to ask you about that. Yeah. So um, it's true. We do not remain objective about Derek White here <laughs> on the Celtics Lab podcast. In fact, Cam and I, as soon as the Derek White trade went through and the Woj tweet dropped, uh, Cam, Cam and I had a nice session in the group chat about how excited we were about that. Um, one of the things that we like about Derek White is that um, you mentioned that there's always interest in the players that don't want to be covered and nobody wants to be covered by Derek White. Uh, Steph Curry doesn't want to be covered by Derek White. Clay Thompson doesn't want to be covered by Derek White. And part of this is because Derek White has really established himself as a kind of hard-nosed defensive anchor, um, you know, player that really just kind of gets into people's heads on that end. Um, And your piece on Derek White kind of goes into that a little bit, uh, as well as kind of the origins of Derek White, both as a player and in kind of how he plays the game and how he approaches the game. So really quickly, kind of how did this piece come about? Why Derek White? Yeah, I mean, I, I love stories like Derek White, like who is the guy that had the most circuitous past? Like who, who like, you know, had to struggle and go here and there before finding his way. Like, I just, I 
like I said, I have a ton of respect for guys that have journeys like that. And I, I just was like, why is nobody covering this guy? Like he does all these really cool little things. Um, and he's not the flashiest name, right? Like, I think like when you see a glossy, like 4,000 word story, you're like, okay, we're going to do it on Jason or Jalen. And, but the people that are in Derek's position, they are so undercover and they have so much to say. And I just, you know, and every time the announcer, like in a game, they'd say like, oh, he just needs to like have a bit more confidence or whatever. I was like, hmm, like what, you know, like why, like what, you know, cause a lot of these guys, like they're supremely confident, you know? So I, I was just really interested in that. And I think like, um, my editors, my editor is really smart. He was saying like, it's kind of a larger story about how, um, mid-season trades work. Like, why do they, like, he was like, I need you to find out, like, why did this work? And, and how, how can other people and other teams figure that out? And that's, that was interesting to me because I'm not, like I said, I'm not really into the nitty gritty of like analysis, right? Like I'm more like D2. Oh my God. Like how'd he get here? I was like, I don't care about the mid-season trade, you know, but I think it was like analyzing that and, and, and what it felt like to be traded and like, why, what sort of intelligence did the Celtics have to be able to pull this off? So I just thought that would be super, super interesting to kind of peel back, you know, the layers on this guy. And you always look for guys that could have a moment. Like that's my thing. I timing is everything. And I, I like, again, like I'm not in the predictor business. Like if you ask me who's going to win, I'm like, Oh, somebody who ends up with more points at the end. I don't know. You know? And I think like he, but I do know like who could have a big moment, what article could be timely? How can I capture somebody at the mid, at the midst of like a, a career defining thing? Like that's what I'm after. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in your piece. One thing that I kind of noticed is that it's, it's got a pretty stark look, not just at like why mid season trades like the Derek white trade are impactful from a roster building standpoint, but also like, how those trades impact specific players. So Derek White is a guy who really had to fight his way just to get to the league in the first place. And then he finally finds a home in San Antonio, one that he really kind of becomes a beloved figure, not just in the Spurs organization, but also with the Spurs fan base. You know, I remember when the trade happened, I actually read some Spurs blogs to get a sense of how they felt about Derek White. And the thing that kind of came up over and over again is that Spurs fans just loved Derek White and were completely devastated that he had gotten moved. Um, and your piece talks a little bit about that. I was just wondering, and there's this one line, why didn't they want me? That really kind of stood out to me. What are you, what were your thoughts on, or, and, and what did you get from Derek about like, on the kind of player centric, like emotional side, what does it mean to be a guy like Derek White, who just fights his way to get into the league in the first place, finally finds a place that he is able to like call his own and then gets moved from that? Because that's a really powerful and emotional thing. Yeah, that line, like, why didn't they want me? That really hit me too. And I was like, wow, that that's it right there, you know, because like, we don't think about that. We're, you know, you see like on the TV, like so-and-so gets traded. It's like one line, but like when you're that person, your whole life is turned upside down, especially if your wife is pregnant. It's like, what, like, where are we going to, you know? And I think um, it was emotional and that's why he really didn't think he was going to get traded. Like he had a lot of friends ask him, like, do you think you could like, and he's like, no, like, 
because he was doing so well and he was so beloved. Like that was one word I, when I was interviewing pop, I said, he just seems so beloved there. And he was like, beloved is a great word. Um, and so I think like beloved with the Spurs, beloved with the Celtics, but it definitely is so jarring. And I think it took so much for him to get to where he was with the Spurs. So it was just so surprising. And not only that, like he was a starter. That's what people don't realize. Like he was a starter. Like he now, this is a completely different role. So when we talk about like confidence, it's hard to be confident when your role keeps changing a thousand times. And so I think the impact of that trade was just like, wow, I have to go into a completely different situation, but I have to do it seamlessly. Like this is my livelihood. Um, so I think he doesn't get enough credit for that. I think people maybe didn't know about him, I guess. Spurs are more smaller market. I don't know, like unless they weren't paying attention, but he, he was not a bench player, like at all. Like this is very new. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, the piece is great, everybody. If you're listening, please go to The Ringer and check it out. Uh, I read it a couple of times just because that that is how good it is. We're going to swing back to Cam for one last question. But thank you so much, Mirren. So, uh, Mirren Fader, you are the New York Times bestselling author of the book Giannis, The Improbable Rise of the NBA MVP and a senior writer at The Ringer. I was going to ask you for a finals prediction, but then you kind of made it clear. That that's <laughs> I think it time. will be the Celtics. I will say, I think it will be, but I don't know. And nobody come for me because I have no idea. <laughs> All right. So I, I'm going to get you out of here on this. We took a little too much of your time. So thanks very, very much for being here. Um, but because you have academics and people interested in, in the craft of storytelling, if you had a 30 second elevator pitch to my students or Alex students or people in Dr. Quinn's field, What's the first step in becoming a better writer? You have to become a really good reader and cool. yes. read, yes, books. You have to read really slowly also. This this like, oh my God, what number are you on your Goodreads challenge? It's BS. Like read slowly, like what, figure out why the sentences flow the way they do. Like ask yourself, like, why, why did I love this book so much? Like really think about it. Like, why was it effective? Why did it hit me? Um, and like, read what you love to read. Like there's a thousand different subjects. Like I got into reading because I love basketball. And my dad was like, you need to read something other than basketball books. And I was like, no, 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 no. And you know what? It worked out. So now obviously I read much more than basketball books, but I would say most of what I read is not sports writing. I know it sounds so weird, but I'm a fiction person. You can learn a lot about storytelling in journalism by reading fiction. You're gonna learn timing, character, plot all this stuff so just remember like it's supposed to be fun like take the school out of it and the assignments and just if you can develop a love for reading like you can be plugged in anywhere because you're just it's I'm telling you like there are some times where I'm like how did I like figure out how to write this and I was like oh it reminds me of the plot of blah 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 so I would just say become a reader and don't feel competitive like I have to read x books a year like no just like read what you want and enjoy that's great advice and I'm definitely going to tell my students that because some of those essays need a little <laughs> bit more reading <laughs> yeah also reread what you write that's yes please read it before you turn it in for the love of your teachers please all right so you heard it here first Celtics NBA champions phenomenal and second <laughs> readers make leaders um that's the big takeaway today there you go Miran, thanks so much for being here. This was a blast. And um, we wish you luck on the secret next project. We can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you. This was so fun, you guys. Pleasure's all on the side of the screen. Thanks very much. 
Thank you.